to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. There's that famous phrase from Kierkegaard, faith sees best in the dark. I find the one thing it gives me, it gives me some reason to have hope. The ideology of intersectionality tries to bring together people not on the basis of a common value as children of God, but in terms of a hierarchy of grievances. Even the most liberal Supreme Court justices have been the vast majority of cases held that obscenity is in a category with conspiracy, treason, false advertising, slander and libel, unprotected speech. Jesus sees the devil face to face and contradicts him with the word of God and overcomes by the word of God and shows us how absolutely vital the word of God is for us. Hi, this is James from Iowa. Future Lutheran pipe organist love listening to issues, etc. You hear these terms like intersectionality or identity politics. What do those terms mean and why have they taken on such sudden and enormous currency in our society, in education, in our culture, especially in our politics? Where did these ideas come from? And more importantly, where are they going? These are the kinds of questions that, whether you know what the terms mean or not, at the outset, affect your everyday life. Hopefully, by the end of our conversation with Dr. Gina Ravith, you'll know what the terms mean, and we'll answer some of those questions. Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's part five of our series on a Lutheran response to post-Christian culture. Today, we'll talk about society, part two. We'll get into politics, especially that identity politics, and we'll see how all of this fits into where it came from, our educational system. Dr. Gene Abravith joins us. He's provost and professor of literature emeritus at Patrick Henry College, previously served as culture editor for World Magazine. He's director of the Cronach Institute at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of numerous books, including his latest, Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. Dr. Veith, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Last time we talked about what you called the new class. Quickly give us a definition of that. Well, traditionally, our economy has been based on production, on producing real, tangible things, whether it was factories or, or crafts or whatever, the making of tangible goods and tangible services. Whether you're the business owner or the workers in the factory, it was all about producing things. What we have now is an economy based more and more on information as a computer takes over everything and the internet becomes a huge, huge uh, economic entity in itself, our economy is based on information. And so the social classes, different sociologists have pointed out, is now not just, you know, the working class, 
folks who work in the factories and in the farms or the business class people in the middle class who own the factories, who own the businesses. Now we have the information class, the people who run the computer companies, the people who, who, who code, the people who, uh, and of course it's not just computers, also education, academia, a lot of the bureaucracy. It's all based on manipulating and doing things with information. And this new class, based on the information economy, has different values and different interests than the traditional classes that come out of the tangible goods economy. And that's changed the face of our whole society. So how has the new class affected politics? Well, traditionally, you would have the uh, Republicans were always considered the party of business and business owners, whether small business or big tycoons. The Republicans represented their interests. Uh, the Democrats were more the party of the working man, the, the factory owners, labor unions, but also farmers and the like. Now, the information class, the new class, is very liberal politically even though they make very, very high incomes. And what we're seeing, even now in the current political scene as it unfolds, Democrats are now the party of the rich, upper-middle-class people, highly educated, very high income, tend to vote Democratic. Now, we still have, have of course, part of the old economy. We still have businesses and, and workers, and they're still out there. But the information economy has created this new class that is more politically influential. And so we have politicians trying to reach the information class in the suburbs and in the uh, Silicon Valley. And those circles are exerting more and more political influence as well as economic influence. Then how has the new class affected real-life communities, life in the, in the real world, so to speak? Yeah. Well, as our country has gone from a production-based economy to a, an information economy, what's happened is not just the production has been shifted overseas, which it has, and that's a big part of it, closing factories, closing businesses, moving those jobs to other countries, but the information economy is also sort of sucking up companies into the, the Internet. And so retail, for example, you know, Main Street businesses, small businesses, mom-and-pop operations. Now, instead of going down to the local hardware store, we go to the Internet and buy something on Amazon. Uh, Amazon.com is like a giant, giant store that reaches the whole country, that the whole nation, even the whole world, is buying from. And what that's done is mean that small towns that used to have a thriving small business community, those are those businesses, many of them are gone, and their shops are boarded up. You have the decline of the production economy, you know, the Rust Belt cities, huge factories that now are empty and boarded up. And so the loss of 
jobs in the in the industrial sector and in the small business sector really affects communities in the information age. Now there are some cities that are centers of the new information economy and they're doing quite well. What happens is that you know new class individuals move in, buy a property, uh, you have gentrification, there's affluent young millennials who, who work in the computer industry move in buy up the houses, drive up rents, and the old ethnic communities and others that have been there for for decades and decades, usually based around a, a factory or, or, or some other production site, they're driven out. And uh, you have a, a real decline in the big industrial cities and in the rural small towns of America as we've gone into this this information economy and then and then with the dominance of the new class, which is largely in some of the big prosperous cities and also in the suburbs. The rest of the country often gets left behind. How have all these changes affected the church? Well, What's happened to the the working class, whether they're in the the cities or the small towns or rural America, is just tragic. And today, the largest number of the unchurched, the the people who, who don't go to church, are from this working class, which is has not only struggle economically, but culturally, they don't fit in with the rest of the culture, and they don't fit in, they feel, with even the the church sometimes. And this used to be the backbone of our churches, people and families that come out of the, the white working class, and yet now the white working class has the biggest percentage of drug addiction, the smallest marriage rates, the most single parenting, and the smallest church attendance. And it's tragic. Meanwhile, the churches are mostly wanting to grow. They're targeting the suburbs. They're targeting the affluent, the affluent middle and upper classes, completely leaving behind, very often, the the people who are in such desperate need. Those are the gospel and a lot of other things the church can provide for them, the kind of stability that they need. And these people are not usually opposed to Christianity, like a lot of the new class people are. They grew up with it very often. They even consider themselves Christian sometimes, but they're not involved with the church because they don't feel that they fit in with it anymore. And it's just a field white into harvest that the church is largely uh, neglecting. And so a lot of our churches are, are, are shrinking in, in those areas, uh, in those regions of need and are are not even trying to reach the people who are so reachable all around them. And so the switch really does affect the church and it contributes to the secularization of the church because the church wants to, to attract the new class, feels like it has to throw out a lot of its old ideas and its traditional moral teachings and the classical way has always done things to try to appeal to the affluent 
suburbanites and urbanites in, in, the, in, the, in the cities, leaving behind, in many ways, some of their old people. Dr. Gene Edward Veith is our guest. He's author of the book, Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. We're talking about society and politics and education as a Lutheran response to post-Christian culture. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. Faith Lutheran Church and School in Plano, Texas preaches Christ crucified. Join us each Lord's Day to hear law and gospel preaching and to receive the Lord's Supper. Our classical preschool through grade 12 Lutheran school is second to none. The school serves home educators too with online classes in the high school. We are located at 1701 East Park Boulevard in Plano, Texas. Reach us by phone at 972-423-7448 or on the web at www.flsplano.org. Equipping the priesthood of all believers. You're listening to Issues Etc. Would you like to help a college or seminary student attend the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference? You can purchase a conference scholarship for a contribution of $135 to Issues Etc., you can donate online at issuesetc.org slash scholarship, or you can make a $135 check payable to Issues Etc., write scholarship in the memo line, and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about society, politics, and education in our series with Dr. Gene Edward Veith on a Lutheran response to post-Christian culture. 22 people have been killed after tornadoes ripped through Nashville and other areas of Tennessee earlier today. LCMS Disaster Response will be on the ground Wednesday morning to do chainsaw and debris removal work. Find out how you can support their efforts at lcms.org disaster Helping the hurting amidst disaster, LCMS Disaster Response, lcms.org slash disaster. Dr. Veith, describe what you call the new absolutism. Well, postmodernism used to be about tolerance, where you tolerate every position. Truth is relative, so you have your beliefs, I have mine, and that's all fine. None of them are absolute anyway. Today, though, this is sort of mutated into its opposite almost. Uh, you have this view that truth is relative, and it has to do with the different groups, the whole different beliefs, 
and have different identities. But the concept of post-Marxism that has gotten everywhere from the universities and now it's just about everywhere is that the different groups who are privileged are oppressing the groups that are not privileged. And so white people oppress black people, heterosexuals oppress gays, men oppress women, and people are thinking in those terms of who's oppressing who. But it's all a matter of power, of power dynamics. And so that suggests that the basic there's not a, a method of social cohesion to bring all groups together and things they have in common, but it's seen as a conflict and of antagonism. And so on one level, you see people feeling like victims, that somebody is always oppressing them, but then what do you do in that case, well, if your group can achieve power, that's the way you get rid of the oppression. But once you're in power, you're going to be oppressing other people. So it follows that if you've been oppressed by someone, once you get power, you can start oppressing them and pay them back. And so on uh, a lot of the university campuses, there's this mentality that literally shuts down certain beliefs. You are not allowed to oppose homosexuality. And if you do, you will be censored, silenced, and punished for that belief. You're not allowed to be anything other than a feminist. You're not allowed to be pro-life. And there's this atmosphere, it's almost Stalinist, in the universities that used to be the centers of academic freedom and free discourse and free thought now have turned into practically their opposite, where conservatives are afraid to say what they really feel. And this new absolutism, for all it talks about diversity, it's talking about ethnic diversity, but it's not talking about difference of ideas or opinions, those are regulated with an absolutist kind of strictness. What is different about the social norms of the new, you say social norms are necessary, but what's different about the social norms of the new absolutism? Well, normally social norms help us to live together for all of our differences. And traditionally in American society, it isn't just a matter of groups, but of individuals. And, and the, the difference of individuals and the difference of different cultures and different groups have been important to this country. But there are norms that allow us to work together. Norms of politeness, norms of civility, norms of being under the same law, norms of respecting each other's rights and the enforcement of those rights by the, the law of the land and our constitutional system. And that's enabled people from so many different countries and nations and backgrounds and to work together to form a unified nation. But now, now that those norms 
uh, the word norm, of course, comes from normal. You know, things that you accept is just sort of normal life. Those are, are, have been under attack for a while, and now many of them break down. And our, as we move into the, the Internet world, the virtual world, we're even farther from society where people live together and they're in proximity with each other and learn to get along. And so those broadly social norms become narrower and narrower and become just tests for what a group will accept and things that you must not transgress. And it becomes kind of a new tribalism where you have different tribes enforcing their collective will and making individuals conform to it at the expense of religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and the like. And so it, it's a very different kind of society. It's very hard to have a, a, a free society like we've enjoyed in this country for so long once that mentality starts taking over everywhere. What are the dangers of a tribal society like that? Well, you look at tribes, you know, that's a form of social organization, a more primitive, an older form than the, you know, modern nation. And tribes have certain characteristics that have come back. Uh, we talked before about the how the new information climb on the internet creates a global village. In other words, it creates a more primitive kind of society. It's tribalism. So in the internet world, you can find your tribe, find people that agree with you completely, and you can find a website and, and talk to them and reinforce each other's beliefs. And other people are doing the same thing, forming their own tribes. But one of the dangers of a tribal civilization is that in the absence of a, of a rule of law that covers all tribes and all individuals, you get into the one form of the revenge code. So in actual tribes in New Guinea or somewhere, tribes living together, and if somebody from one tribe injures a member of your tribe, there's no police you can call or that you recognize. You are obliged to take revenge yourself and punish the person who offended you. And then that tribe is going to attack your tribe, and your tribe is going to attack them back, and it build, can build and build into these big vendettas that go on for generations, and they end up wiping out the tribes uh, very often, eventually, as we're seeing in, so in Rwanda and even in our history, uh, the Hatfield and the McCoys back in the backwoods, they had a tribal society, and uh, the feud was, was devastating to, to both sides. And so we're seeing that on the internet, just the, the viciousness, the retribution, if somebody transgresses, social media just comes on them with such harshness. And uh, often, this doesn't just say on social media, people lose their jobs for saying the wrong thing or for misspeaking or for even something that they did 
in their childhood, now those things are brought back and they're held responsible for them. And now the tribe turns against them and they're cast out. And, and that mindset of people punishing other people for what they've done or for, for violating the principles of their tribe, again, it's not the role of individuals to take revenge. As Scripture tells us, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will repay. He will put it right. And he works through the government authorities that talks about in Romans 13. But in today's mindset, which rejects God and the, uh, the, the rule of law more often than not, you have this, this, this vicious climate that can take down just about anybody. And, and we read about it daily, how that happens. But that's very much a kind of a tribal sense of justice, as opposed to a sense of justice where there's a trial and deliberation, and you figure out if the person's guilty and to what extent, and what the just penalty needs to be. You know, all that process is is thrown out in a, in a tribal kind of view of justice. We will contrast the ideologies of modern and postmodern society with Dr. Gene Edward Veith, author of the book Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture, right after the break. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March is for children ages 4 through 7. See My Savior's Hands is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more about See My Savior's Hands at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. See how Jesus' hands tell the story of his life, death, resurrection, and love for us in See My Savior's Hands. A great Easter gift for young children, grandchildren, and godchildren. See My Savior's Hands. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study an empty tomb, Jesus appears to Mary, sending the apostles, Thomas confesses Jesus, and Jesus and the 153 fish. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Spiritual and Religious You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. 
Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. We're talking with Dr. Gene Edward Veith, author of the book Post-Christian. It's a series with him that we're doing on a Lutheran response to post-Christian culture. Today we're talking about society, politics, and a little later, education. Dr. Veith, if you would, contrast the ideologies that arose under modernism with the ideologies that are current in postmodernism. Okay, well, the modern era, uh, you can think of it as the age of reason, from the Enlightenment through the first half of the 20th century, the thought was that human reason is all we need to understand the world. We can find all the answers. We can solve all of our problems just by the application of reason. Now, we don't need revelation. We don't need religion. We can figure it out. And so the modern era was an age that really valued the, the expert, you know, the view that, well, if we just get enough information, the experts can solve uh, the problems of poverty and war and psychological problems and all the rest. It was a trust in the reason, but it was oriented to the objective world and to objective knowledge. Now, the thing is, that kind of modernism, that kind of reason did not succeed application of expertise did not solve our problems of war and poverty and everything else and unhappiness. And so this was succeeded on the failures of modernism by the postmodernist who reacted in another extreme. Now, the modernist threw out any kind of truth except scientific truth, what we can see and measure scientifically, but they threw out objective morality, objective religion, and everything else like that, that they thought didn't accord with the with their human, human reason. The postmodernists took the next step of throwing out even that kind of objective truth, and they emphasized that truth is a construction, that we make our own truths, we make what's true for us. And this constructivism could be by the individual who formulates his own morality or by the culture, since different cultures, they thought, have different kinds of truth. And so the postmodernists started to believe that it isn't just that truth is relative, but that the different groups have their own truth. And then add to that the political ideology we talked about, the post-Marxist view, 
explained everything in terms of social class, the post-Marxists apply that to other groups, not just social class, but races and ethnicities and uh, gender and other kinds of groups. So then you have the different groups contending against each other. Nietzsche taught, who's one of the foundational postmodernist thinkers back in the 19th century, prepared the way for a lot of this, said there are no absolutes. It's nothing more than the pursuit of power, the will to power. And so that view led to both individuals, you know, focusing on their own desires and appetites and constructing their truths accordingly, as well as to the the political view that sees all of culture as different groups trying to exercise power over each other. We still have modernists, of course. They're still scientists and still engineers and still uh, people that work in factories and produce uh, material goods. But mixed in with those is the postmodernists who've really become dominant. And, of course, the information age fits in well with this constructivist view where they're producing not goods but information. And uh, the new technology fits in well with that constructivist view because in the Internet, people really are constructing virtual realities, realities that aren't real but that exist in the virtual world. And so that's very fitting, and these trends are just sort of exacerbated by the new technology that's taking up more and more of our lives. Introduce us to this term, intersectionality, and if you would explain what role it plays in attempting to organize a society that's essentially been shattered into a bunch of different identity politics, how intersectionality organizes people for political action. Okay, well, the reality is that we belong to, any one individual belongs to lots of different groups. It's not that we're just one or just the other. And so a typical person may be a woman who's white and heterosexual and poor. Okay, now so she's belonging to a number of different groups. And intersectionality says that all the groups who are not privileged, that the people are a mixture of privileged groups and oppressed groups, but that all of the oppressed groups need to ally together. They need to become allies to work to oppose the existing system. And so uh, people who are racial minority homosexuals, uh, women, the poor, all of these marginalized groups, the transgender, need to support each other and to support each other's cause. Now, in fact, the individual, the woman I mentioned, intersectionality teaches that each person is oppressed in some ways, but also privileged in some ways. So this woman is privileged because she's white, but oppressed because she's poor. She's privileged because she's heterosexual. So you you go through all of your different identities, and we have a lot of identities, and some are 
privileged and some are oppressed. And so that woman, because she's poor, intersectionality would say that she needs to ally with other oppressed people, people who are transgendered and who are racial minorities and so on. But what it forgets, I mean, say a, a man, a, a man who's black and who's wealthy and who is heterosexual, he's he's oppressed because he's black, but he's privileged because he's wealthy. Now, in reality, a person, there is oppression in this world. There's privilege in the world, uh, I suppose. But individuals, part of him is not treated one way, part is another. We're whole individuals. But this ideology of intersectionality tries to bring together people of the different tribes, the different groups, not on the basis of a common humanity or a common value as children of God, as, as, as people who've been created in God's image, or because there are certain human rights that all of us have. But in terms of a hierarchy of grievances, and so the people who have more grievances, the, the person who's uh, maybe Hispanic and gay and Muslim and poor has a sort of a higher intersectionality score than the woman who is poor, but she has all those other things that make her supposedly privileged, even though she may live in the most abject poverty and be in the most miserable condition, yet she's considered privileged because of the color of her skin. And so intersectionality, I mean, I think is a testimony to the, the weakness, really, of this postmodern tribalism. And it's an attempt to pull people together, but we're already seeing some of it sort of coming apart of the seams that a lot of these groups don't have things interest in common. And many black people, for example, are actually very conservative Christians. White working class folks have the lowest percentage of church attendance. Black working class people have the highest church attendance. And they are not very accepting of things like homosexuality which has played out in our current uh, political uh, scene recently, and they don't really have the same common values as the transgendered. We're seeing feminists now who are having trouble with the transgender movement because men are claiming prerogatives of women simply on the basis of their self-proclaimed new female identity they're claiming, which shoots feminism down. And so... Intersectionality is is an attempt to bring the groups together on a, on a common political cause, but it's not enough to really do that insofar as they reject the idea of common humanity and things we all have in common. How has identity politics managed to find a home on both the left and the right? Well, again, the, on the left, you have a, a, a conflict we're seeing between kind of the old left, the old Marxist left, which looks at social class and economics 
is the main issue, and the identity politics that focuses on the interests of you know women and the sense of feminism and race and gender and all these other issues. And today we see Democratic Party and the political efforts right now, that's a major kind of split that they're trying to, to work out. Again, that's on the left. On the right, we're seeing with the so-called alt-right, the alternative right, instead of a conservatism based on going back to you know, the principles of the American founding and you know the, the Christian religion and the heritage of our Western civilization, they're taking the post-Marxist ideas and applying it to themselves. So they, so you have people now who are looking at that they are oppressed as white people. They see minorities oppressing white people and women oppressing men and homosexuals oppressing heterosexuals. And so they're becoming militant in that very same way, sort of like a mirror image of what's going on in the left. And so we have an identity politics of the, of the right that wants to exercise power against these other groups because that's what the common assumption is. It's nothing but power and advancing your tribe and uh, putting down the uh, everybody else. And again, both sides are playing that same game, which ultimately leads to, to no good. In that vein, Dr. Veith, should Christians who do genuinely experience oppression to varying degrees, mm-hmm. depending on their circumstances. We've been promised we will be oppressed yeah. by our Savior. Yeah. Do Christians need to be extremely cautious about adopting the framework of identity politics when it comes to responding to genuine oppression that they may experience in society? Yeah, I think we really do. We really do. Christians will be oppressed Again, we're taught that Jesus says that we will. The difference is that we are not allowed to oppress other people in retaliation. Jesus tells us to to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And that's a very different kind of mentality. This view that everything is a matter of power is repudiated by Jesus Christ himself, who gave up his power, who emptied himself of it, that is to say, and took on the form of a servant and died on the cross. He certainly had power, as he says in his miracles, and he's the Lord of everything. And yet he set that aside he said that power is to die for us sinners, to die for people who are using their power against him. And he did that to save them and to redeem them. And that's what Lent's all about. And then he rose from the dead, and he will come again with power and with glory. But again, this theology of the cross is about emptying this this whole power thing, and that the Christ did, and Christians in our lives have to also to love our neighbors, not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. 
And that's something that has no place in the kind of dominant political cultural moment right now, uh, which is there's no forgiveness for transgressions in in the world. You have to pay for that. And as a Christian, we know something very different. We have a different ethic, come from a different spirit. We have a different identity based not on what race or color or creed or ethnic group or interest group we want to choose for ourselves an identity that comes from our our baptism in which we whatever our group whether male or female jew or greek again all those categories have become so important again today it doesn't matter when you've been baptized into christ and he gives us a different identity so we shouldn't think of ourselves as in terms of our race or our sexual preference or anything like that, as is so common now, but in our identity that we have in Christ, and that identity means that we treat other people in a very different way, and it's going to be common in the world. You're connected to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part five of our series on a Lutheran response to post-Christian culture with Dr. Gene Edward Veith. If you're enjoying this series, be sure to attend the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. It's your opportunity to meet and hear some of your favorite guests speaking on topics like secularism, the U.S. Constitution and civil virtue, Christian political engagement, the obedience of Christ, and the Trinity. Making the Case is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Child care is free for children ages 1 through 12 thanks to Lutheran Church Extension Fund's sponsorship. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or by calling 618-223-8385. When we come back, is our education system the cause of or the result of intersectionality? Built on the rock, children of the Heavenly Father, on my heart imprint your image, rejoice, rejoice, believers, and so much more. Hi, this is Pastor Will Whedon inviting you to join us for our hymn sing at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. This year's theme, Northern Lights, Danish and Scandinavian hymns. Making the Case is Friday, June 12th, and Saturday, June 13th, at Concordia University, Chicago. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org. In 1939, the British Army received an Enigma machine that helped them crack the secret Nazi codes in World War II. In the March issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Sam Schultheitz writes about the Screwtape Letters, a book written by C.S. Lewis, a type of Enigma machine for deciphering the temptations of Satan. Read the March issue of The Lutheran Witness to learn more about the Screwtape Letters and how Satan tempts us today. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. We Lutherans were never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. 
Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, Coordinator for Stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. Other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org slash stewardship, lcms.org slash stewardship. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Gene Edward Veith is our guest, author of the book Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. We're talking with him in a long series about post-Christian culture and a Lutheran response to it. Turning to the subject of education, Dr. Veith, I know something near and dear to your heart. Is our educational system, is it the cause or the effect of intersectionality? Well, this notion of intersectionality emerged out of higher education out of the universities. And in a big university, there are lots of people from different groups who get together, and uh, each is sort of tutored today in a kind of a radical mode. But it originally came from universities where uh, not you know black people and homosexuals and feminists and all were, were talking together and trying to figure out how to work together. So I think in that sense, higher education was sort of the cause of it, of certainly the environment that it came out of. But then it starts to reinforce itself as it's taught and even finds its way in the curriculum of grade school kids sometimes. As But again, our schools are a place where people do get together, and that can be a very positive thing. But instead of the traditional ways of seeing our common identity as Americans, as human beings, or or as Christians, or as people created by God. But when you look at people just in terms of their identity, the ideology drives people apart. And so intersectionality is a way to keep everybody together on a radical, as long as they're following radical politics of one kind or another. I think what people have thought about education is that they, the soft sciences, maybe the arts and all those things, would be a natural home for intersectionality and identity politics. But what we've discovered is that even the hard sciences, the STEM stuff, has been infected too. How has this happened? That's right. Well, you hear all the time of scientific conferences now that are getting criticized because they don't have women or minorities participating in this conference or in this research project. There, there was even a controversy that broke out whether scientists should use the research of other scientists who have been accused of or found guilty of sexism or conservative politics or the like, that, that somehow that means that their research isn't valid in the scientific area. And again, those things are not supposed to count in science. 
The only thing that's important is the objective data and empirical experimentation that's been carried out. But scientists live in the universities mostly, and it's remarkable how even scientists are feeling the same social pressure to be politically correct and and, and how this is being enforced even in, in the hard sciences. They're human beings too, scientists are, and they're finding that even their research is being often shaped or controlled or canceled or censored if it doesn't conform to the canons of identity politics. Finally, on that subject of education, Dr. Veith, I think that many of us have kind of said we need to disconnect from the entire educational system. It's not just this subject, that subject, or even the educational method per se. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's the other side that is disconnected from the whole educational tradition. You know, even though that other side is now seems to be controlling everything, in the vast scheme of things, they're the ones who've departed from the heritage of education that we have and that's so precious. So I've gotten really involved with, with classical education, the attempt to sort of bring back and cultivate and apply in new ways classical approaches to education, which predate the constructivist view that kind of dominates in progressive education today and has been for uh, for a while. So I I salute Lutheran schools that are, that are starting, you know, church schools that are starting, Christian schools, especially those that are now following the, the, the classical approach rather than just imitating whatever the progressive educators are saying they should do. They're homeschoolers who, again, are tend to have a more traditional and often even a classical curriculum. And we're finding that the performance of progressive education is just terrible. The ability to read, write, to know things, even in the sciences and mathematics, especially, that constructivist worldview is not conducive to good education. It conflicts with it. Whereas a classical approach to education, most of the traditional approaches to education, the child is not constructing truth for himself or herself. They're discovering truth. They're taught to be open to the world, open to the past, open to other people, open to God's creation, to learn more and more about it, to see themselves as part of that great reality. Whereas constructivist education, it's, I think, just defeating itself. So yes, Christians should pursue the best education for their students and and for themselves. If that doesn't mean separate schools or homeschools or classical curriculum, sometimes people can't do that. Then it means parents teaching the children on their own. It means parents reading books that give a different worldview from what they'll find in the online and in so much of the discourse today. And it means kind of hooking back into that 
great heritage of education that we have and recognizing that it's the people today who are who've departed from it and who ironically are sort of crashing and burning with it because it just does not work educationally as well as in, in other ways. Dr. Gene Edward Veith is Provost and Professor of Literature Emeritus at Patrick Henry College. Previously served as culture editor for World Magazine. He's director of the Cronach Institute at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of numerous books, including his latest post, Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. Dr. V, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, The Words of Scripture, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about the word peace. Boy, do we need some today. We'll get Glenn Stanton's reaction to gaying up straight marriages, and it's our media coverage of religion feature with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.